If you have a copy of the scriptures, I would invite you to look with me in the book of Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to look at these verses 14 through 18. There are also going to be some other passages I'm going to read. And so if you remember a few weeks ago, we kind of picked out different uh, verses from different chapters and kind of put them together. We're going to do something a little bit similar today. However, we're going to focus far more on the Hebrews passage than the other ones. But I will refer to those other passages that we're going to read together. If you're just joining us, we are looking um, at the book of Revelation from January through June. And so this, the first four Sundays of this year are basically uh, trying to get an introduction to the book of Revelation. So this is sermon four uh, as an introduction to Revelation. So this is number four. Next week, we'll actually get into Revelation chapter one. So, but we thought it would be important to kind of lay some groundwork down uh, so that we could understand what the book of Revelation is saying. And so we can understand how to approach the book. So our theme for thinking through Revelation is this, that God always completes what he starts. Remember that? So I want you to be thinking about that and ruminating on that and let that marinate in your heart. God always completes what he starts. And if you have that, at least, if you're least willing to entertain that idea, I think it'll make the book of Revelation a whole lot easier to understand. So with that in mind, let's read together um, Hebrews 2 and Colossians 2 and some from John's gospel and then from the apostle John. So hear this. This is God's word. Hebrews chapter 2. Listen to this good news. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he, that is Jesus, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore... He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Listen to this from Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. By triumphing over them in him. John 12. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. John 16. Concerning judgment. Because the ruler of this world is judged. And the apostle John says. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the son of man. The son of God appeared. Was to destroy the works of the devil. You got that? So I tried to put some verses together that kind of say very similar things. So we're going to explore this. But let's first ask God. Let's first ask him to help us. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is eternally true. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but your word stands forever. So as we gather to understand your word and to sit under it, Lord, I ask that when we come to worship and we come to your word, that you would help us to not come into this place, to not approach your word looking for greater self-sufficiency. Help us to come to worship and help us to come to your word desiring greater dependency on Christ, greater dependence on you, Jesus. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do this. Take out our self-sufficiency and make us more dependent on Jesus. We pray this through you, Jesus. We pray this through you. Amen. Have you ever thought about how much we love winning? You ever thought about that? There's even a phrase that we hear more and more these days. You know, that person, they're winning at life, right? Do you remember the statement? Winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. Remember hearing that? Isn't it true that we all love winners? We all have our favorite winners, right? We love winners. And what's also true is we hate winners. We love to hate those that succeed. We love to hate those that seem to be further advanced than we are. That's why when we look at winners, we have a tendency not only to love, but also to hate, and it stirs up all this stuff within, right? Like it stirs up um, jealousy, it stirs up bitterness when we see other people win in ways that we wish we were winning. It stirs up uh, cynicism. It, it stirs up this sense of uh, the desire to be a copycat. Really, think about business. Think about your life. Think about the advice sometimes you want to hear for your relationships. You want to know what someone else is doing that you perceive as winning so that you can copycat what they're doing and win. We love to look at winners and think, what are they doing? Copy that so we get the same result. It's no different in the church. We can struggle with wanting to be a copycat too. We see some church over here that succeeds in some way that we think we should succeed. Therefore, we think, well, what did they do? Then let's just implement that and we'll get the same result. We love winners. We hate winners, and it stirs up all kinds of stuff in us, especially it tempts us to want to live as if if we just get the right method, then we will get the result that we want. Sound right? I mean, think about, I, I heard this uh, a number of years ago. I'm going to ask you, superimpose this onto your life, just for a second, just for fun. This was an uh, individual's definition of winning or success. Um, the person that does the greatest amount of good and the least amount of wrong for the longest period of time. Just superimpose that onto your work. Superimpose that onto your relationships. Superimpose that onto anything. Isn't that kind of what we all try to do all the time? Most amount of good, least amount of bad for the longest period of time. And if we do that, then we will think we're successful and we're winners. It's kind of true, isn't it? Sadly, it's true. Here's something else that I think all of us can observe about winning and the desperate desire we have about winning. 
It's not just that we love winners, at least some. It's not just that we hate some. There's this. Deep down, it is clearly at least observable to me that we often wonder if winning is actually real, if it's actually a thing. Is there any finality to winning? Like, does it really bring me what I want? Here's what I mean. To use a couple athletic examples. Remember Lance Armstrong, the guy that, you know, won all those amazing international races, the Tour de France, and did it over and over and over. I mean, incredible, incredible record. But yet what happens? Hmm, performance enhancing drugs, right? So those that didn't like him were always, in, oh man, there's something wrong here. There's no way this could have happened. And of course it turned out he was doping. So were others. Um, but it's true, right? Not really sure that winning is a real win. How many times do we do that? Or think about uh, what we think winning will bring us. But we're not really sure that that works either. Remember this uh, guy named Tom Brady? Even if you don't like football, you've probably heard something about him over the last number of weeks. A guy that has been incredibly successful. Remember this interview he had a number of years ago? I've mentioned this conversation to you, this interview. And he was asked, Tom, you've won all these Super Bowls. You won all these MVPs. You married a supermodel. You have hundreds of millions of dollars. What's it like? And his response, now there's got to be something more. Like this guy, this guy is a winner. He's won. Like he's winning at life. And his response is, eh, there's got to be something more. More recently, he was interviewed, as in within the past 12 months, he was interviewed and was asked the question, what's your favorite Super Bowl win, your favorite win? And you know what he said? The next one. Why? Because everything he's accomplished at this point isn't really satisfying. It doesn't give him the worth and the meaning that he thought it would, right? So maybe the next one will. Through these passages, I want to show you a victory that has no loopholes and a victory that has real finality. I want to show you a victory that has no loopholes and has finality. And here's what we're going to look at this morning. And I completely forgot to do this at nine. I apologize to those of you that may be re-listening because I just blew this at nine o'clock. Here's my outline. Forgot to say this this morning. We're going to look at winning and then we're going to look at so what. So I want to show you a victory without loopholes and a victory that has finality. So we're going to think about winning. And then we're going to think together about the so what. What does this mean? So winning. When we read Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 through 18, it might not make sense to you right off the bat. So here's what makes sense of those verses in 14 through 18 that we read together in Hebrews chapter 2. Here's what makes sense. There's a phrase in verse 8 that says this, but we do not yet see or do not now see the subjection of all things to him. So in other words, when we look at the world, we don't yet th see things subject to Jesus. That is what makes sense of verses 14 through 18. So that means we need to think about that phrase in verse 8 a little bit before we get into understanding what 14 through 18 is communicating. So we do not yet see all things subject to Jesus. What the author of Hebrews is doing is he is actually taking us all the way back to creation. 
He's quoting from the Psalm, Psalm 8, and he's taking us all the way back to the way things are supposed to be. Remember that four-part story we spent so much time on last year? The writers of the Bible assumed it all the time, and this is a great example. The writers take us back to creation because we don't see things the way they should be, but this is how it's supposed to be. God made you and me a little bit lower than the angels, but we were above creation and animals and everything else. In other words, not so much in terms of power, but in terms of order. So when God created the world, he created it full of order in which angels are above us, in which we as human beings are created in the image of God, and that's different than the angels, and that we are above the animals and the world so that we are supposed to have God's image and reflect that by displaying it everywhere in creation. So that actually it's not so much about power, it's actually about responsibility. So that we are the ones that are responsible to show God in the world by loving him and loving others and loving place. That's our job. That's, why we, that's what we were built for. But something happened, right? Look, I mean, look at the world around us. What do you see when you look at the world? What do you hear when you listen to the news? What do you see all the time at your work? Disease? Death? I mean, when you look around the world, what do you hear about? War? Right? When you look at our country, when you look at other places, we see injustice all the time, everywhere, right? We hear stories after story after story every day about injustice. It's everywhere, by the way. The justice, the way that God talks about justice. Giving people their rights. Providing for people's needs. And appropriately meeting out consequences of things. God's view of justice is completely comprehensive. And when we look out at the world, we see injustice everywhere. And that is because after creation, we rebelled against God. You all know this, right? But do you really live as, do we really live as if we know it? I mean, when we rebelled against God, we said, God, we don't want you to define right and wrong. We want to define it for ourselves. God, we don't want you to give us a purpose. We want to define our own purpose. We want to create it. Or God, you tell us what meaning is, but we want to discover our own meaning and our own worth. And all of that is rebellion. All of that is sin. All of that expresses brokenness. And it brings about death, right? That's what's happened. So yeah, we don't see the world subject to Jesus because what we see is, are the effects of sin and brokenness everywhere, even in our own lives. And one of the greatest expressions of this is death. One of the greatest expressions that things aren't the way they're supposed to be is the reality of death. You do realize that God made us body and soul to be together, body and soul. And because of sin and rebellion, now there's a separating of body and soul for a period of time. And that is not the way God intended. So that we have to deal with this thing called death and dying. And perhaps if you're like me, at some level I'm coming to grips with death, at some level but I'm really afraid of dying. What's that going to be like? And then you press a little bit further and you start thinking about death. And remember the, the author Tolstoy that said, um, what 
meaning is there in my life that my inevitable death will not erase? So it's not just that we have to live with death, we actually have to think about, well, is there anything that I'm doing that my inevitable death will not erase? Is there anything that's beyond me? Is there anything that's beyond my life? Is there anything beyond just living for a few short years and then what, not existing anymore? And you can even encounter people that really, really have become settled with the reality that maybe there is no purpose to life. Maybe there is no meaning. So just, you know, kind of exist. I'm sure you've run into some of these folks that think that way, because I have. And it's, it, it breaks my heart. Doesn't it break yours? When you encounter people that think that meaning is, is maybe there isn't any. So we do not yet see everything subject to Jesus. Yes. What we see is everything broken. But see, that's the background of these verses. If you go back and look at 14 through 18, it's telling us three things about Jesus. The first one is this. You see it in the first phrase. He partook of flesh and blood. You see it in the second phrase, that he has experienced everything we have. And that's even paralleled in verse 16 and 17. He's been through everything we have. And the third thing that these verses tell us is this. He helps. He helps. You see, we actually believe that God took on human form, that he became a man, that he took on flesh and blood. That actually happened. That means you don't have to try to get to God. He's come to you. Take that in. Stop trying to work your way to him. Stop thinking that he doesn't exist. Stop thinking he's hiding. He's come to you. He's come here. He's come to this earth. Real human form. And he partook of everything that you partake in. Meaning, he knows your life from the inside. It's not just that he's all-knowing. It's that he has experienced what you are experiencing and what I am experiencing. He has experienced it. So he knows temptation. He knows what it's like to live in a fallen world, to be under authority, to see that everything's messed up. He knows it. And that means that he can help. He doesn't help angels. That's what the text says, right? No, he helps those who are from Abraham. He's talking about people that believe. He's talking about people like me and you that need help. And look at all the things that it tells you that Jesus helps you with. He helps you with temptation because he himself was tempted, just like you, except he didn't give in. But he was really tempted, really tempted. Take that in. He was tempted to misuse his power on and on and on. He was tempted in every way, just like you, just like me. You know how else he helps us? In suffering. He knows what it's like to suffer. You actually believe in the God who understands suffering through his experience. He knows what it's like to suffer. Jesus can help you when you suffer. He helps me when I suffer because he's telling us that there is redemptive value in suffering, that God has a plan, an intention for that suffering, and it brings about something that is far more glorious than what we could imagine, and most of the time we can't even see it. But Jesus has suffered, therefore we should expect to suffer too. Jesus learned and grew through suffering, we will too. 
Look at what else it says that it helps us with. There's this big word in there. I'm going to use it because the Bible uses it. Whether you've heard it or not, it's great to introduce you to words if you've never heard it before. Propitiation. Jesus helps by being a propitiation. You might wonder, what in the world is that? It's this. God is holy. And he created us and built us to live in a certain way. And we rebelled against God. It brought about God's wrath because he's holy and loving. And that means he looks at his creation and can see that we are drowning and have drowned in sin and death. And he says, I can't stand it that you are destroying yourselves through your sin. And I love you so much that I will satisfy my wrath in Jesus. So that Jesus' life and death, it didn't just cover sin, as glorious as that is. He didn't just put a covering over our sin. He actually absorbed the wrath of God for you and me. Like absorbed the curse of what our rebellion means. Like all this death, all this disease, all this injustice, all this violence, all this war. He absorbed all of that. And Jesus also helps us with the effects of death. Did you notice when we read those verses together that, oh, we have a tendency to have a fear of death, literally a phobia of death? But Jesus did something so that we no longer have to have a phobia of death. He's helping us. Those verses are telling us that what Jesus has done through the cross and what Jesus has done through his resurrection have profound effect on our everyday lives. Temptation, no longer having to face the wrath of God, dealing with suffering, and even the fear of death itself. Jesus helps us with all of that. Why? Because he's died. Because he rose from the dead. He actually won. He gained a victory. See, look at these phrases. Let's summarize this. Look at these phrases. Look at verse 14. He might destroy the one who has the power of death in Hebrews 2. Do you see that? How about Colossians 2? Look at the end of verse 15. He put them to open shame. He's talking about rulers and authorities that, you know, are all giggly and excited about our rebellion, our death, and our sin. He put them to an open shame. It even says he triumphed over them. See that? You see, here, here's, what, here, here's what happens. Our great enemy, Satan himself, goes to God and he says, God, this is your standard. This is your way of living. This is how you created these human beings. This is what you made them for. And they aren't doing any of it. So he accuses us by saying, this is what God says. And they're not doing it. And he says, God, and you also said there are consequences. So they deserve those consequences too. And what Jesus has done means that everything that God requires has been satisfied. It means that when Jesus died on the cross, he took the curse upon himself. He actually became sin and the consequences of it. So that Satan no longer, our enemy no longer has anything to bring against us. Because anything that he can point to in our lives, Jesus has done. Perfectly. 
So that whatever consequence we deserve for not living up to the way God says to live, Jesus has paid the consequence so that death no longer can hold us. So that our enemy has no way of bringing any accusation against us that's legitimate or real or that can last because of Jesus and what Jesus has done. So, you think about Hebrews 2 and Jesus destroying Satan. You think about Colossians 2 that Jesus triumphed over them by making a public spectacle of them through the cross. Then look at what he says in John 12. Jesus had entered Jerusalem in John 12. It was the week that he died. And look at what he says. I've come because the ruler of this world has been judged. I'm going to cast him out. Then you look at John 16 where Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's telling them about the coming of the Spirit. And he says one way you'll know about the coming of the Spirit is that he will convince you that the prince of this world is indeed judged through what Christ has done, through his death and resurrection. That's one evidence that the Spirit is at work in your life and in my life. That I understand that my great enemy has been judged, made a spectacle, defeated, destroyed. So the Apostle John adds in chapter 3, For this purpose the Son of God came, to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus has won. His death and resurrection actually mean something, that he is victorious. Well, that's winning. Let's think about the so what, because I understand how that can just seem like a lot of abstract doctrine. I understand that. But man, I wish I lived more consistently with what that is saying, what God is saying. But let's try to get more practical, at least try. So what? What does this mean? What does this mean? Well, it means something for you and for me. Jesus won. His victory means something for you and me. If you'll allow me to summarize and personalize someone that lived, oh, I guess about 400 years ago, this is what he said. And this is what we have to do. We have to think about, and this is some serious reflection, what do you think Jesus actually accomplished? What do you think he actually did through his death and resurrection? What is your view of what Jesus has done? Here's a summary of our options. This is me summarizing and trying to personalize someone else. Either Jesus died for all sins of everyone, or he died for some sins of everyone, or he died for all sins of some. Beloved, if you think that Jesus died for all the sins of everyone, we know that some people are eternally lost, right? So why are they lost? Because they don't believe. Well, is unbelief a sin or is it not? If it's not, then how in the why in the world are we accountable? If it is, then either Jesus died for it or he didn't. If he did, then why in the world are they lost? If he didn't, then he didn't die for all sins. See, that view doesn't work. You can't believe that Jesus died for all sins of everyone. It doesn't work. What if you believe that he died for some sins of everyone? 
That's obvious, right? That can't work either. Because that means we would still have something to give an account for, some way to make up for those shortcomings, whatever they are, that that Jesus kind of helped us out a little bit, but he didn't actually, you know, I still have things to deal with that I have to make atonement for. Can't do that. It has to be that he died for all the sins of some. And if that's true, then, then you actually believe that Jesus is a real Savior, he didn't die to make salvation possible. He didn't die salva- to, to, make sal- to make you savable. He didn't even die to make it possible. He's a literal Savior who actually died for all the sins of his people. All of them. And that means that my life is not defined by my wins and my losses. And it means the greatest wins that I will ever have, whether it's on the athletic field or in my profession, they don't mean anything. And it means the greatest losses in my life, the greatest deficiencies, the greatest failures have no hold on me. It means that Jesus defines who I am. It means that my place before God is absolutely secure no matter what because he actually is my Savior. Because he actually is your Savior. He actually saves. And that means my life with him doesn't fluctuate between backsliding and being sold out for Jesus. It means that my life with him doesn't fluctuate between figuring out how bad I'm backsliding and just making radical decisions for God. It means that if Jesus is my literal Savior, it means, it means that everything in my life is a building block. So when I have successes in my life, and sometimes when I win, doesn't get me anywhere with God. It means that I'm supposed to learn something from that. And that's a thousand things. Giving him glory, giving him praise, whatever it is. And it means that even in my moments of failure, even in moments in which the Holy Spirit reveals to me sin that I didn't see before, it means that God is teaching me something. Like, how amazing Jesus is. It means that when I come to the end of my life, like the Apostle Paul, by the work of the Holy Spirit, I might say, I am the chief of sinners, but Christ has saved me. It means that if Christ is my literal Savior, then everything about my life is defined by him. And that means with Jesus' resurrection, Follow me here. Jesus has gone ahead of me. That when Jesus died, he went ahead of me. And he died in my place and entered the tomb so that on the third day, he blew a hole in the back of death. And that it can't hold on on to me either. So that as I go into the tomb and as I go into the de- my deathbed, as I end up dying, that what is on the other side is life because Christ blew a hole in the back of death and has no grip on me anymore. 
even if I fear it, even if I struggle with the concept of dying or death, Christ is there. Remember this? The empty tomb was not so much so that Jesus could get out, but so that we could get in. And think about death through what he has done and realize that it has no more power. What Jesus has done has an effect on you and me. It also has an effect on the world and the future. You realize if you go back and read these verses that what Jesus did not only redeems his people, but it has a particular emphasis on our enemy it's himself. As if to say, Jesus has done something to Satan himself. He has done something to death itself. He has done something to sin itself. That means that our enemy has been crushed. It means that there is tension between what we see in the world with death and disease and poverty and injustice and war and tension with what Christ has done. You see, it means that what's going to happen in the future is what we have been seeing. The human heart hasn't changed. Sin is still all over the place everywhere, no matter what continent, no matter what government. Sin is everywhere, rebellion is everywhere, the effects of it are everywhere. But beloved, the gospel of Jesus Christ and his message in the church has been going everywhere for 2,000 years. Since the resurrection of Jesus, the light around God's people no longer centers around Jerusalem. It has gone to the ends of the earth. And remember, we are the ends of the earth. From the first century, we are the ends of the earth. God's church has continued to spread and grow so that we're going to see this tension between evil continuing to be clearly observable and yet God's kingdom and God's church is continuing to grow. And that's our future. We're going to see the gospel grow and churches be built. We're going to see God's truth everywhere. Now, I know you might be wondering, what in the world does this have to do with Revelation? I get it. So here's the fourth point. Jesus did it. Jesus actually accomplished something. Remember point number one. You will never understand the book of Revelation without going back to the beginning and understanding Genesis 1 and 2. Because God always completes what he starts. So the way he set up the world and the way that he intended us and the way that he built us and what he told us to do will happen. Sin can't even stop it. So when God says that he set up creation so that we might rest, meaning not inactivity, but satisfaction and delighting in and enjoying and rhythm, that's where we're headed. So that revelation is explaining the very thing that God said at the beginning. That was point one, remember? He always finishes what he starts. Number two, we have to understand time. We won't understand revelation properly without understanding time. And the last day started in the first century. Revelation doesn't begin to tell us about the last days. Revelation is giving us a summary of what has been happening since the first century when Christ came. 
And if that's another thousand years, then Revelation will be summarizing 3,000 years until Christ's return. The book is summarizing the last days, and that started in the first century. Three, there's some things we know and some things we don't. So we looked at last week in 1 Corinthians 13. We know that Christ's love conquers all. So when we come to the book of Revelation, we have to remember there are some things we know and there are some things we don't. And we ought not try to press in on what we think we can figure out but we don't really know and let that distract us from what we really know. What is it that we know? That brings in number four. He did it. He actually accomplished something. Jesus is a real savior and unless we believe that he literally saved and literally defeated death and literally made a public spectacle and destroyed Satan himself, unless we, get, unless we get that deep down into us, we will never understand Revelation properly. And in my life, I struggle to live out of the reality of what Christ has done. I don't know about you, but I do. And here are three ways or I'll give you three signs of how I know that I struggle with knowing that Christ actually accomplished something. The first one is this. I have a tendency to give evil a lot more credit than it deserves. And that means I think that it's more powerful than it actually is. And that means that there are times when you'll hear this kind of thing come out of my mouth because I'm expressing what's in my heart and in my mind. I'll say things like this. Man, have you seen how bad this is? Man, it just seems like everything's falling apart. Those are evidences of me thinking that evil is a lot stronger than it is. Second sign is this. I know that I'm struggling to live by what Jesus has done when I pay more attention to what I think, what I guess, what I assume our enemy is doing rather than what Jesus has done. So it's not just that at times I give too much credit to evil. It's that I can live my life paying more attention to where I think the enemy is working to what Jesus has done. And when those things are true, I end up thinking that, you know, my great hope is to get out of this place. That my great hope is just to escape. And if my great hope is just to escape, then it means that being concerned about place doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It means that I struggle with thinking about loving the place where God has put me and might even be skeptical about that because that is really not that important, right? I'm just going to get out of here. I just get to escape. But if we live by what Jesus has done, if we actually believe he's actually accomplished something, then what's happening is that one day heaven and earth will be reunited and therefore I should care about what I'm doing every day because living out my calling matters. It means that I'm living out what Christ has done. I'm living in the power that he is working through me because he is redeeming and changing. 
It means that place really does matter. It means that the earth really does matter. It means my job really matters. It means my relationships really matter. Because heaven and earth are going to be reunited one day. You see, the victory of Jesus means this. All is going to be amen and alleluia. The victory of Jesus means we shall rest and we shall see. And we'll see and we'll know and we'll know and we'll love. And we will love and we will praise. Beloved, that's our end. And there is no end. Because Christ has won. And that's what brings us to the table. We get to celebrate the victory. The victory that's won not through power, but through love. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. After he had given thanks, he also took the cup and said, this is my blood. Shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink from it. Beloved, when we eat and drink together, we are participating in the truest story of reality. That we were created by God. That we rebelled. That Jesus redeemed and one day he's coming again and will restore. And when we eat and drink together, we are participating in that story. And we are saying, yes, God, you created me. Yes, God, I rebelled. Yes, Jesus, you have redeemed me. Yes, Jesus, you are coming back. And you're going to make it all right. That's why the Bible encourages us to examine ourselves. Because you see, when we come to the table, we're not just intellectually remembering something. Otherwise, you couldn't eat and drink judgment to yourself by improperly taking it. It means that when you come to the table, we should be thinking about whether or not we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you haven't put your faith in Christ, don't partake of this meal, please. But take Jesus. Recognize that his perfection is for you. That God is not, you don't have a chance of counting your wins and losses before God. What you do have is the opportunity to receive Christ as your everything. And for those of you that believe in Christ, oh, you need this. You need this. Because it's another way that God gets the gospel into you and into me, into us. Because we get distracted with all kinds of other stories that aren't the main one. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for giving us your word. It teaches us more than we could even begin to fathom. Jesus, we thank you for giving us your life. For it's in your life that we find life. Holy Spirit, help us to feed on Christ as we partake of the bread and the cup together to participate and to commune with him, to participate in what you are doing in the world, Jesus. Help us, nourish us, strengthen us, refresh our hope in Jesus. In his name, amen.